God in heaven, I thank you for the privilege to pray. I thank you, as we've been mentioning throughout this week, that our greatest argument is our need. And Lord, we need you. And we're seeing that very clearly from what we've been hearing in the message of Christ, our righteousness, that when men see their nothingness, then they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We confess we have nothing, we are nothing, and you're everything. So Jesus, please descend into this place and minister to each of our hearts, I pray. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what I'm going to share with you is some of the best advice I've ever received in ministry to start. Uh, I was at ASI in 2017 in Houston, Texas, and I was speaking with Taj Pakleb. He was one of the speakers here last year. And anytime I get a chance and I can ask a seasoned evangelist, I always ask them the same question. What advice do you wish you would have received when you were starting in ministry, knowing what you know now? Now, I'm not just starting, but certainly in experience, I could, I could learn from a lot of people who've done it longer than I have. So I said, what do you wish someone would have told you when you started knowing what you know now? And the answer that Taj gave me was not an answer I was expecting. In fact, instead of giving a direct answer, he started telling me a story. Jesus did this, so this isn't a, a sinful thing to do, but I wasn't prepared for a story. I was expecting just a clear, straight answer, point A, point B, point C, keep it real, see you later. Um, that wasn't what he did. And so we had this conversation, and he starts telling me the story about the man at the Pool of Bethesda. You ever heard of this guy? Yeah, now this man at the Pool of Bethesda has been an invalid for how many years? 38 years. That's a long time. Moise says somebody 38 years old is old. How cruel of him. He said 30's old. We're friends. We can do stuff like this. And... So anyway, this man's been an invalid for 38 years. He's not 38 years old. He's been an invalid for 38 years. And he's in this condition because of a lifestyle of sin. Desire of Ages says he's in the most helpless case there. But Jesus comes up to this guy and asks him a seemingly obvious question. Do you want to be made well? Now, if you've been an invalid for 38 years, what would your answer be? Yes. Uh, yeah. That's not the way the guy answers the question, though, unfortunately. And it kind of gives you some insight into the shame and the condemnation that's going on in the headspace of this individual. But then Jesus tells him to do something. He tells him to do three things, actually. He tells him to rise, take up his mat, and to walk. Taj is still telling me a story right now. And Taj says the rising makes sense <clears throat> and the walking makes sense. But then he says... What's with the mat? The, the mat doesn't make sense, right? For this paralytic to rise, hey, that's good news. For this guy to walk, that's good news. But why pick up the mat? This mat is just a reminder of 38 years of rejection, abandonment, shame, loneliness, and helplessness. It's just a reminder of all the bad stuff that's happened in his life. Why pick up this dirty thing? Then Taj went in. That's precisely the point. What Jesus is basically telling the man is to not forget where he came from. It's to remind him of the fact that this is where you were when I found you. And I think it's a really, really good reminder. And it was great advice for me in ministry. You know, the easy thing is to say, don't get too big for your britches, stay humble. Taj didn't say that. He told me through a story and was just saying, look, man, it's easy. When you get in ministry, you're speaking to people, you're doing your thing. It's easy to forget where you came from. And his advice was to not forget. I'm very, very grateful for that. Appreciate his friendship and appreciated that counsel. 
And the counsel he gives me reminds me of two Bible characters. And when we say Bible characters, you think it's like a play and they're just actors. These are real human beings. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of this. But the two people are Simon the leper and Mary Magdalene. Simon the leper and Mary Magdalene. They're people with two vastly different stories. But of all things, they converge at the feet of Jesus. So Simon. Simon is a religious leader who contracts leprosy. And that's a bad day, right? Any day that you contract leprosy, it's not a good day. It's a really, really bad day for a lot of reasons. For one, the cost is very high. You're completely isolated from your community. When you contract leprosy, you no longer live in your home. You live outside of the community. You're completely deprived of intimacy. You can't be touched, no hugs, no handshakes. You're cut off from community and intimacy. But not only that, it's also believed by Jews in the first century that if you contract leprosy, this means that you are cursed by God. Imagine being a pastor who the community now all sees and believes is being cursed by God. A lot of shame, a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation in this man's experience. But Jesus, in his great mercy, miraculously heals this man and restores his ministry. And it reminds me of the story of Steve Wahlberg. He's in the Pacific Northwest, right? Is he in Washington? Idaho. Idaho. Never been there until this summer. I just saw Rob walk in. Where is Rob? There he is. We're going to talk about that later, I hope. There's an amazing opportunity coming to this union in Idaho called Disciple Trek. If you don't know what it is, Google it, because it, it's going to be awesome, and I can't wait. I'm coming back for it. Um, but this guy's ministry is restored. Here's what happens. Just imagine all the, the headspace he's going through. Steve Wahlberg goes through a situation where he's, he ends up just kind of out of nowhere, starts having issues sleeping. He can't sleep. He starts hearing voices. He's dealing with depression and anxiety and panic attacks. He's having a horrible, horrible experience. It's crippling him. It's really diff making it difficult for him to do ministry. And he starts taking sleeping pills to kind of help him get through some of this and, and develops a dependency upon the sleeping pills. But then they're not working as well. It's just terrible. I saw him at 3 being camp meeting early on in this experience, and he looked haggard. He looked stressed out and worn out. Uh, I was going to go hang out with James Rafferty, and James was sitting with him at 3 being camp meeting at lunch. And I, I, I got into the last tail end of the conversation, and James is telling him, Steve, just, just cancel all your speaking appointments for the next year. People will have you come back the following year. Just cancel them. Take time to get healthy. Do what you need to do. I had no idea what he was going through. I could just tell that he was stressed, and I heard the counsel James gave him. Months go by, and it's this terrible experience. It even gets so bad that some of the voices that he's hearing in his mind are starting to persuade him of things that you would never think a minister would be persuaded of. He's actually being told that he's going to find himself outside of the city in the second resurrection. A minister of the gospel being harassed with these voices in panic attacks and depression and anxiety. Horrible experience. Word gets to Dr. Nedley uh, that this is going on because uh, Steve Wahlberg is planning on going to ASI. He says, Steve, we have room in our program. Would you come? Please come. Change your plans and just come to Weimar and go through our program here. And he did. And it was a big blessing to him and helped him get through a process to kind of get over a hump. And uh, things have been improving since then. But he's telling the story of what went on months later at his church. The first time he preached at his church, he was just sure of the fact he will never minister again. And just imagine, you've committed your life to ministry, right? Winning souls for Jesus, preaching, writing books, developing programs, giving his life for service for God. 
And as you're out there on the battle lines, you find yourself so beat down, you think you'll never go back again. Life as you know it is over and will never be the same. But in this moment, as Steve Wahlberg is preaching to his local church, he's weeping as he's telling the story of God's faithfulness in healing him and restoring him. Just imagine the gratitude welling up in this man's heart for what he went through. Yeah, imagine what Simon's going through, something very similar. He thinks his ministry is completely over, and Jesus reinstates him into ministry by healing his body and healing his soul. What a blessing. Mary Magdalene has another story. Mary herself was actually abused in some form or fashion. We're not given a lot of details, but something happens to her at an early age that leads her in a very difficult process in life. She feels that she's worth nothing and starts giving herself away and living a lifestyle that is horrible. She's living a lifestyle of sexual sin, and everybody in the community knows that she got problems. It's a small community in Bethany. Uh, they had this TV program in the 80s called Cheers, and in the jingle for the opening part of the television program, they would say, we want to go where everyone knows your name, and everyone knows your name and your business in the small town of Bethany. She's an outcast. Stay away from her. She's got problems. But Jesus, in his great mercy, sets this woman free as well. I was just reading something in a book today, uh, doing sermon prep for tomorrow, in this amazing, listen to this, where, because she ends up having seven demons cast out of her, and it's seven instances. It's not, you know, Jesus prays once and seven demons leave. That's not the implication from the way we're told in Desire of Ages. It's seven separate treatments she has to get to get through her problems. It's deep, it's hard, but listen to the way this person uh, talks about this. They say the demon is cast out, and Mary feels a sense of relief. And would it appear that perhaps she's whole again? Hope revives in her young heart like the budding of flowers in the springtime, but by and by she discovers that her problem is not entirely a thing of the past. Soon Mary falls again, and with that fall, another demon takes up residence in her soul, and with that fall, she's forced to the realization that she's still a sinner in need of God's grace. It must have been devastating. Almost like the feelings of failure and despair which came over her when that awful event had first taken place so long ago. And then listen to this. this. This line just wrecked me. No fall hurts quite so much as the fall which occurs after one thinks that he or she has been converted. You ever been there? This is the last time, Jesus. I'm never going back. And she ends up in a situation. It's not the last time. And it cripples her and her hope plummets. And yet Jesus shows up and heals her again, and heals her again, and heals her again, and miraculously sets this woman free. Wow, what a God. So a feast is held in honor of Simon's healing and also in honor of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and who's also from Bethany. And this guest that certainly is an outcast in the community at this stage, but actually is a family member to Lazarus and Simon, Mary, she shows up to this feast and she steals the show. Not by making this ostentatious display, look at how holy and pious I am, like the Pharisees on the street corner. She sneaks in, and she goes straight for the feet of Jesus, wanting no attention, nothing of the sort. The story is found in Mark chapter 14, if you'd like to join me there. Mark chapter 14. But this is a happen in place, right? If someone has been raised from the dead and someone has been cleansed from leprosy, well, let me, let me just ask this. Let me do a survey. How many people in this room have raised somebody from the dead? Just, just, just raise your hands in the air so we can see. All right. Uh, it does happen, by the way. It is happening even now. 
John Baxter told a story about that, how he was a missionary in India and raised somebody from the dead. And then guess what happens? The next time somebody dies, they bring them to his house. And that person wasn't raised, right? It's a difficult thing. Everyone in the village starts bringing dead people to John Baxter's place. Um, but it does still happen. How about anyone in this room ever healed somebody of leprosy? Speak a word of healing over somebody of leprosy. Okay, so this is a big deal then, right? And so everybody in town is here at this feast to see Simon who's cleansed, to see Lazarus who ain't dead, and it's a big deal. And Jesus, the guy who healed them both, he's here. The house I'm sure is full. I'm sure there's music. I'm sure there's food. It's a loud gathering and an appreciative gathering. It's a celebration. But in Mark chapter 14, beginning of verse 3, it says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. But there were some there who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil? And what's the next word they say? Wasted. Just imagine, this woman's giving everything she has for Jesus. And followers of Jesus are saying, What a waste! You're going to take something this expensive and just waste it on Jesus? And it's followers of Jesus who are saying this. And by the way, who is it that instigates this situation? Anybody know? It's Judas. Judas. They say, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Notice it doesn't say, and he criticized her sharply. This poison that's in Judas is contracted by the rest of the disciples. At least one more. And this woman feels condemned, she feels shamed, she's discouraged, and she doesn't know what to do. And it's unfortunate when things like this happen from our own brethren. She's accused of being wasteful with her expensive gift, but the ironic thing is she's the only person in the room and seemingly in the entire ministry of Jesus who actually gets it. Jesus is going to die, and she's wanting to give him a gift to express her, her appreciation before it's too late. No one else wants to believe this. When Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to die, you know what their response is? That's ridiculous, Jesus. How on earth are we going to reclaim the land from the Romans, and how are we going to have a throne next to yours if you're dead? That's dumb. Why would you even think something like this? They're totally clueless and militant against the call of Jesus. But she gets it, and she gives him what she can. And Jesus sees that she gets it, and he goes in, and he responds to the murmuring. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done what type of a work for me? She's done a good work for me. You ever been in a situation where you get harassment from the brethren for doing a good work for Jesus? Yeah, she understands. She's done a good work for me. And then he says, for the poor you have with you always, right? If it's really the poor that you're worried about, they're going to be here always. But me, you don't. I'm not going to be here always. And she understands this. And you missed a blessing, fellas. You missed a blessing. You're harassing someone who ought not to be harassed. She's done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial. Notice, not to me, but to her. Literally, this woman and the gift that she gives right now is meant to be told right alongside the preaching of the gospel. 
Hmm. I wonder why is my first question. And my second question is, is that happening right now? But that's not the only murmuring that happens from our offering. We find another account of this in Luke chapter 7. Turn with me there, would you? Luke chapter 7. And we'll begin around verse 36-ish. As you're turning there, Mary is weeping at the feet of Jesus. She wipes them with her tears, or she, she wets them with her tears. She dries them with her hair, and she anoints his feet with this fragrant oil. And you can just imagine, people aren't fully paying attention to what's going on at this stage. In fact, well, we'll get to this in a moment, but Jesus doesn't even seem to be recognized when he walks in the door. Like the feast is in honor of this guy, and he goes completely unserved, and this city person who's been rejected by the whole city, they show up and just imagine if there's music, if people are talking, if there's food, they don't fully know what's happening, but they start to get an idea that something's happening. You know why? Their nose starts to tell them what's going on over here. And they look and they see this woman weeping, making a fool of herself, the feet of Jesus. What's this lady about? Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse 36. Uh, Verse 39, actually. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet. I need to stop here for a moment. Anytime somebody wants to address the ministry and the calling of Jesus with the word if, I'm not okay with that. I'm just not. Right? In Matthew chapter 4, if you're the Son of God, make these stones become bread. And just imagine being Jesus, first of all. The Bible says that Jesus created all things, and through him all things were made. That includes angels. That includes Lucifer. And just imagine when you have the devil's hot, stinky breath coming in your face saying, if you're the Son of God, do something about it. Do you think Jesus knew he was the Son of God, yes or no? Yeah. Do you think Jesus could have done something about it? Yeah. Fellows, you may be able to relate to this better than somebody else. If you're really a man, do something about it. Right? Someone gets in your face in the basketball court. Somewhere else? And Jesus doesn't respond to this nonsense. But the point is, they're challenging Jesus' identity with a statement like this. Happens again when Jesus is hanging upon the cross. If you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. And you would think that someone who's been miraculously healed by Jesus would have a little more grace in their heart Since, you know, who knows how long this guy's been healed, but if we're having a feast because Simon has been healed of leprosy, I'm assuming this isn't 10 years later. I'm just going to go out on a limb and make an assumption. And so this is fairly close proximity to this, but he reverts back to his old mentality as a pastor. Well, what is his mentality as a pastor? This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So this pastor's worldview is God wants nothing to do with broken people who have issues. Wants nothing to do with them. They're gross. We avoid people like that because they have cooties. We don't want to get you know, any stuff on us by being near them. Certainly God wants nothing to do with them and we want nothing to do with them. That's a problem. That's a very big problem and that sounds nothing like the God of the Bible and that sounds nothing like Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. We should not be thinking this way about people who have sin in their lives. I'm just saying. So this guy's wrestling with some stuff, unfortunately. But the other ironic thing is he's saying, why would Jesus even let this lady touch him? Because she's a sinner. Who is it that's responsible for her being in this condition? 
it's Him. This is called projection. When you yourself are guilty of things and you don't want to deal with your own baggage, so what you do is you start branding everybody else as having the problems that you got and don't want to deal with. This originated with Lucifer, projecting his own character traits upon God amongst the unfallen angels, trying to persuade them to follow him. God is selfish. We talked about that earlier this week. When who was it that was really selfish? Lucifer. And anyway, I'll I'll move on. Here's the thing. She's doing for Jesus what Simon should have done for Jesus. And Jesus reminds him of this, and Jesus goes in. Go to verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had how many debtors? Two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave both. Okay, I'll say it. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I have a question for you. Jesus says, To whom little is forgiven, they love little. I have a question for you. Is Jesus looking for reasons to forgive little? No. I believe the reason why Simon was forgiven little was because he saw his need little. And Jesus is reminding him of this. You've missed a blessing this evening, my man. She understood her nothingness. We're told in the faith I live by 111. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, then they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Simon clearly did not see his nothingness. Mary did. I believe the reason why Simon didn't perform the cultural norm of serving Jesus and washing his feet is because Simon forgot where he came from. He forgot what Jesus delivered him from and in turn felt no obligation to serve him. I mean, just imagine the very guest of honor walks into your house and it literally is if Jesus Jesus walks in and he's like, oh, hey, Jesus. So anyway, and he's talking about whatever he's talking about to whoever he's talking to and completely ignores the man doesn't serve him, doesn't do anything for him, but has the audacity to condemn him for touching and letting someone touch him who has sin in their life. Simon clearly does not see his nothingness. And this is one of the issues of the church in Laodicea, isn't it? Everybody else has problems. It's called navel-gazing, right? We're staring at everybody else's problems, but we don't actually understand our own true condition. And that's a problem. Because if we don't understand our condition, then we don't see our need of a solution. And so we think we're rich and we have need of nothing. 
all the while not recognizing that we are in massive spiritual poverty. Simon needs Jesus, and he doesn't see what's going on. He's forgotten where he came from. You know, one evidence that we've lost sight of where we came from is when we're willing to condemn others for the way that they give what they had to Jesus, even if it ain't pretty. You may have someone walk into your church next Sabbath who says amen just a little bit too loud. You don't know them, you've never seen them before, and they may be giving praise to God and gratitude to God in ways that make you just a little bit uncomfortable. But if they're giving Jesus what they have with what they know, leave them alone. He's glad to receive it. And I assure you the fact that if Jesus wants them to give praise in a different way, He'll educate them, but right now He's glad to receive it and leave them alone. Amen? We are so quick like Simon to cast judgments towards other people when we don't know them from Adam. We don't know their story. And it is a miracle anytime someone walks through the doors of our churches. And it's not because our churches are bad. But who shows up at a church on a Saturday morning? And yet we're quick to jump to conclusions about people that we don't recognize and don't know anything about. And shame on us. We have forgotten where we came from. Shame on us. Let's show them the grace that we wish to have received when we came to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. And that's the problem. We forgot who we were when Jesus found us. And so we treat them in a way that we wouldn't have wanted to be treated when we started. Another evidence is our unwillingness to humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus in service for Him. When we feel that we're above this type of service, or this type of outreach, or this type of service, or this type of service, that's again another evidence that we have forgotten where we came from. For Mary, there was no offering that could be good enough for Jesus. She gave the best she could with what she had. She did what she could. Are we doing what we can? Mary remembered where she came from, and this is why she gave Jesus everything that she had. She went all in. Simon forgot where he came from, and this is why he did absolutely nothing for Jesus. He lost track of how precious it was to sit at the feet of Jesus and to have him as the guest of honor in his home and in his life. And you know, just in, in total frankness, the moments that I don't feel like giving of myself for Jesus and for his people are those moments where I have forgotten where I came from. That's me. I don't know your story, but I can tell you mine. Those moments when I don't feel like giving, when I'd rather feel like taking and doing me, hey, that's Satan's kingdom principle. That's selfishness. It was the glory of God to give. I'm not living up to the glory of God when I'm doing me. I need Jesus. I believe this is why many find themselves idle in their Christian experience and why they're doing nothing for Jesus. They have forgotten where they came from. And the ironic thing is there are many people who aren't doing anything for Jesus who have a whole lot to say about how everybody else is doing at least something for Jesus. We have our commentaries. We armchair quarterback. Oh man, they shouldn't do that. That's never going to work. Well, what are you doing? Well, nothing, but I know that won't work. They're doing what they can. Leave them alone. That's what Jesus said. Yeah? Okay, we'll move on from this point. That can change. When we have an encounter with Jesus and are reminded of where we came from, that spirit can change. That worldview and that mentality can change, and Jesus longs for it to change. Maybe that's why he's knocking on your door, even though your religious experience makes him want to vomit. 
must be because he sees something of value inside of that door, even when it doesn't look all that great. That's the faith of Jesus. He sees something in you that even you don't see in you. And he sees something in the people that we're condemning that we don't see in the people that we're condemning. And that's why he's pursuing them too, amen? And he's asking us to live out the faith of Jesus, to receive his faith in them, and to live accordingly. So I don't know where you find yourself this evening. Maybe it's a story of Mary that resonates with you, that you're giving what you have for Jesus, but no one seems to understand or appreciate. And it's wearing on you. You feel like you're being condemned and just treated poorly by the brethren around you, and you're just wondering, is this thing even for me? Maybe I'm not welcome here, and you're tempted to just leave out of discouragement and despondency and a seeming lack of appreciation. You're to the point that you just want to leave. My counsel to you this evening is to not forget where you came from. Don't let them take that from you. We need you. You're the very person who would do something that needs to be done. Don't let them take that from you. Don't forget where you came from. When you're doing service, you're doing it for him anyway, not for them. If they don't appreciate you, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for him. And if you're making a fool of yourself doing it for him, it's okay. He can silence your accusers just like he did hers. Amen? It's your saving grace. Don't forget where you came from. Maybe it's a story of Simon that resonates with you, that you've lost sight of just how precious it is to have Jesus in your home and in your life and to sit and to weep at his feet. And my counsel to you is exactly the same. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget. I'll give you some transparency this evening. I went through an experience that LOI refers to as apparent failure, where I committed five years of my life to a particular situation where prayer, providence, Christian counsel, and the word were all pointing me in one direction. And so I committed my life to this and looked like an absolute fool in doing so. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're waiting on the Lord and no one seems to understand. Imagine being Abraham and Sarah. You're going to have kids, huh? 25 years later, they have a kid when they're 100 years old. Sometimes we get led into these seasons of waiting, and it's hard, guys. It's difficult. So I was in this situation, and eventually the whole thing, the bottom fell out, and it never came to pass. And I felt like a complete fool and failure. Reminds me of the situation, we're not going to turn there because it's a total disaster. But in Judges chapter 19, where the Benjamites had done something that's absolutely abominable. And when they do this, the nation of Israel is going to judge them. And the remaining tribes go to judge them, and they say, Lord, should we do it? And God says yes. And they go to battle against the Benjamites, and they get their rear ends handed to them. Ten tribes against one tribe, because I'm assuming the Levites don't fight. Pretty sure they wouldn't. And so they go back, weeping and praying before the Lord, and they say, do we go again? And the Lord says yes. And they get their rear ends handed to them a second time. Carrying out the will of God and get their rear ends handed to them. They cry before the Lord. They say, do we do it again? And a third time, they do. And they prevail this time. And you wonder, why? I don't have an answer for you. And so you think, all right, what does Ellen White say about this? You know what she says? Nothing. I hate when this happens. <laughs> right? You get to these difficult texts, and you're just like, all right, certainly she can help me make sense of this. And you open it. Cricket sounds. Like, you search for this text in the Ellen White app, and it says, I'm sorry, there are no results for your search. Like, all right, Jesus. I tell myself I'll ask this question in millennium, but I think I'm going to be so happy to be there that I'll totally have forgotten all those questions I had. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that the Lord is good, and the Lord is getting glory out of even difficult, discouraging situations. I know that much is true. 
because that's how he does life. And no one says amen. That's fine. So this led me into a very dark two to three years where I'm now dealing with depression, discouragement, loneliness, and radical poverty while in public ministry. And no one knew. I didn't even fully understand what I was going through. And so I went through a situation where I was not paid in ministry for nearly a calendar year. And it wasn't because the ministry didn't want to pay me. We didn't have any money. And at the same time, God has the audacity to open the Red Sea and to put me in a situation where I'm to buy a car and I don't want to buy a car unless someone shows up with a suitcase full of money because I don't want any debt. You know what happens? The Red Sea parts and the route he takes me to is one that's going to put me in a very difficult and awkward situation. I'm going to have to trust God every month. And I don't want that. In all blatant honesty. God opens the door. That car's been a tremendous blessing. I never had a single issue. And you know what happened? Every single month I saw a miracle. Every single month. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. More stories than I could tell you this evening. That's not the point of this message. But I went through a very, very dark time, preaching in the darkest experience of my life. But I did know this much. I didn't stop praying. I didn't stop reading. I didn't stop preaching. I didn't stop doing, giving personal Bible studies. I knew to just keep going. But I could, and I knew the character of God well enough because it was the love of God for me individually and the value He placed on me individually that won me in the first place before I ever even knew what a Seventh-day Adventist was or what 3ABN was. Never knew. But I knew that was reality and that was true north for my compass. So even though I went through difficulties, I've always known this is not that God is bad that God is against me. I know God is for me. I don't understand what he's doing right now, but I know this much. God is good. I knew. I knew that. And I praise God for the fact that that was the start of my experience. I didn't go through this bad religion experience and the wandering years and coming back. I was basically unchurched for years and the love of Jesus swept me off my feet as a broken man. And it radically changed my life. Then I find Adventism. Then I found the love of Jesus in Adventism. Did you know that you can find the love of Jesus in the Adventist message? Yes. It's not just something that's true. It's something that can warm your heart and change your life. I've committed my life to preaching this message. But as I went through this process, it was difficult. But I knew to just keep going. And nearly every sermon that's on Audioverse is me preaching in the darkest experience of my life. And no one knew. No one knew. And the thing that was hardest for me to understand is why is it that God is working with such power as time goes on? God kept working in even greater power as time went on while I'm still dealing with darkness and it makes no sense. Why is he blessing these people and pouring out his spirit in great measure whenever I feel like I've died inside? Like I'm living in a cave even though the sun is out. I couldn't understand why the darkness wouldn't leave. But I just kept going. So you get to about the, the restoration series last year at, at Loma Linda. That's when those clouds kind of started to part. And there's a message. I was in a situation at a boarding school at an academy, a, a conference academy. And I was going to preach. I'd already been preaching the whole week. I'm going to preach the Friday night message. And I hadn't written the message yet. I was close. I had a basic premise for the message. It's going to be about Elijah. It's going to be called, What If I Fail? And I have a few quotes from Ella White in my slides at that moment. And then I messed up that day. Anyone here ever messed up? All right, those who didn't raise your hand, we'll be praying for you. <laughs> I messed up that day. I feel like a total loser. I have no desire to stand before these kids and preach. I know I need to. I don't want to. 
I don't feel worthy of doing so, and I got nothing to offer these people. And it's one of the scariest experiences of my life because I don't, I don't mess around when it comes to prepping sermons, and you shouldn't either. If God has given you the privilege to speak from the sacred desk, take that responsibility seriously. If you have nothing to offer them and you don't want to prepare, give it to somebody else who will prepare. This isn't something you trifle with. And so anyway, I'm in a situation where I'm, I feel wholly unprepared, and I don't know what to do. And I stand at this pulpit on a Friday night, 250 young people staring at me, and young people are scary, just so you know. <laughs> preaching to young people is hard, right? You, you think preaching's difficult, wait till you preach to a group of young people, and especially like the late grade school to junior high age. They are ferocious. Man. High school kids, they're hard too, but it gets a little bit easier because they all realize, hey, we're all insecure. We'll just not be so hard on each other. But junior high, man. Whew. So anyway, it's just a difficult demographic to, to preach to. You kind of get used to it, but initially you just wonder, is anything happening? Like, am I even in the same room as these people? Like, you just wonder. So I'm standing before this group of young people. I don't know what to do. And I just pray my guts out that night. Jesus, please help me and help them. Forget what happens to me. Jesus, just do something for them. And what comes out of my mouth is a message that's entitled, What If I Fail? And it's the most responded to message I've ever had. Facebook messages, emails, and so forth. And I can't claim a single bit of it. I can't claim it for any message, for that matter. But certainly not for that one. And that message was for me. God gave me words to share. God gave me everything I needed. And what came out of my mouth is a message I've preached all over the country. And it's been listened to people by all over the world. I got a, message, a text message from David Asherick a year ago. And a friend of mine, he baptized me. I went to Arise. And he, he sends me a text message. They had these two chairs on, on the, the stage of their church. And he sends me this picture of this lady. I don't know her from Adam. They have a testimony Sabbath. And he says, this is so-and-so. And he says, she heard your sermon, What If I Fail? And it brought her back to Jesus and back to his church. Amen. I've never been to Australia. I don't know this woman. And yet God used this. She doesn't know the story behind that message, dealing with depression, messing up that day, having nothing to offer these kids. And nobody knew this darkness that I was going through. And yet God in his mercy blessed and provided. But here's the thing that's so disappointing to me. In the midst of all that scenario, even in those dark moments, I lost sight of the fact that I was not the man that Jesus got a hold of in August of 2004. I forgot. Even though it was dark and it hurt, I was still not the same man I was when Jesus got a hold of me. I forgot where I came from in public ministry. Preaching the gospel to people. My tears weren't fake. I'm not saying I wasn't converted. I was going through some darkness, guys, and I forgot. And that can happen to believers, can it? It can happen to ministers. We're no better than you. Never have been and never will be. And this is what I went through. You know, we're told that Mary's offering is to be mentioned wherever the gospel is preached. You ever wondered why? The loneliness of Christ. You ever been lonely? Did you know that Jesus' life was filled with loneliness? His whole life. No one understood him. No one really appreciated him. The loneliness of Christ separated from the heavenly courts, the people who did understand him, living the life of humanity to the people who didn't understand him, was never understood or appreciated by the disciples as it should have been. 
And he was often grieved because the disciples did not give him that which he should have received from them. It was heartbreaking to Jesus to not be understood, to not be appreciated by men who should have known better, and it crippled Jesus. It broke his heart that he did not receive that which was due him. They took, they took, they took, but they didn't give. And we do the same thing to Jesus, guys. We take, we take, we take, but we don't give. Give me, give me, give me, but we do not give Jesus the appreciation, the adoration, the praise, and the service that he deserves. It's all about me. And it still grieves Jesus even today. He was often grieved because he didn't receive that which was due him. That's still true 2,000 years later. Jesus deserves better than I have given him. Far better, and I'm sorry. I wish I gave Jesus what he deserved. I wish I had the life that Mary had in that sense. Her life is a living rebuke to mine because I regularly forget where I came from. He knew that if they were under the influence of the heavenly angels that accompanied him, they too would think no offering of sufficient value to declare the heart's spiritual affection. So why is her offering to be preached to the whole world whenever the gospel is preached? Because we're prone to not get it. And we're prone to forget it. And Jesus knew that this is a weakness in our human flesh. And so when you preach the gospel and tell my story, tell her story too. Because my people have forgotten where they came from. It's the Laodicean message that goes hand in hand with the gospel. You're not who you think you are. Her getting it was a fragrant reminder to Jesus through every step of his sufferings that somebody is going to value what he's going through. Satan is barking up Jesus' tree from Gethsemane through the cross, telling him, these people don't appreciate you. You're wasting your time, man. Move on. And every inhale tells Jesus, that's a lie. That's a lie. At least one person is going to respond, and I'm going to do it to the end, even if it's just for her. Even if it's just for one. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved her to the end. And he loved you to the end. All the way. But every inhale reminded him, someone will respond, someone will appreciate it. He knew that he was loved and appreciated, and he knew that his sufferings would be worth the cost. And you know, Jesus' offering for us is meant to perpetually remind us of his love in our darkest moments. It's meant to be that sweet-smelling aroma that reminds us that there's a God in heaven who loves and values even me. When it's hard, when it's difficult, and I don't feel like going on, I need to inhale. And I need to remember that He's been good to me. The fragrant gift which Mary had thought to lavish upon the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon His living form. At the burial, its sweetness could only have pervaded the tomb, but now it gladdened His heart with the assurance of her faith and love. But Mary pouring out her love upon the Savior while he was conscious of her devotion was anointing him for the burial. And as he went down into the darkness of his great trial, he carried with him the memory of that deed, listen to this, and earnest of the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. This is also a foreshadowing of the fact that others will respond too. When everyone else seems to be throwing scorn and hatred in the face of Jesus, someone will respond and this person responding is a foreshadowing that many more will. And this is what keeps Jesus going when he's suffering and tempted to quit. 
when he's dying for your sins and for mine. Mary knew not the full significance of her deed of love. She could not answer her accusers, and neither can you. And you don't have to, amen? amen. Jesus will silence your accusers. She could not explain why she had chosen that occasion for anointing Jesus. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit had planned for her. Think with me, guys. Think, 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 think. As God the Father is surveying the landscape of candidates to use to minister to His Son, the person He chooses is someone who many of us would be uncomfortable if they walked in our church tomorrow morning. This woman has a life history of sexual sin and nonsense. And God hand-selects this woman to minister to Jesus, to strengthen Him, to keep suffering for you and for me. You know what that tells me? If your life has been filled with brokenness and failure and sin, Jesus longs to use you. You still have a powerful ministry ahead of you. It's not over. I don't care what your church thinks. I don't care what people around you think. Jesus still sees something in you. And He can use you in ministry even with your past. Even with yours. He may have to cast 14 demons out of you. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. The love of God knows no bounds and the transforming power of God's love knows no bounds. And her story is a reminder. Hey, maybe that's why Jesus wanted her story told alongside the gospel. No one's excluded. There's room in the kingdom for you. The Holy Spirit had planned for her, and she had obeyed His promptings. Inspiration stoops to give no reason. An unseen presence, it speaks to mind and soul and moves the heart to action. It is its own justification. Christ told Mary the meaning of her act, and in this, He gave her more than He, more than he had received. He's giving her a greater gift than she gave Him. In that she hath poured this ointment on my body, he said, she did it for my burial. And as the alabaster box was broken and filled the whole house with its fragrance, so Christ was to die, his body to be broken, but it was to rise, he was to rise from the tomb, and the fragrance of his life was to fill the earth. Amen. How does that happen? Maybe we should speak up. Let's tell them. Let's live the fragrance of Christ's life so that people have an interest to find out what's going on. We need it. He needs it. Jesus not only loves you, Jesus not only believes in you, Jesus needs you. Yes, even you. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Verily I say unto you, Christ declared, wherever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall also be spoken of for a memorial, again, not to me, but to her. And looking into the future, the Savior spoke with certainty concerning his gospel. It was to be preached throughout the whole world, and as far as the gospel extended, Mary's gifts would shed its fragrance, and hearts would be blessed through her unstudied act. Do you think that's why she did it? Of course not. And that's why she could be used. She saw her nothingness, and so in turn, she was prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But she says that Jesus spoke with certainty that her story would be told alongside his story. 
Jesus looks like a fool right now. You know what that tells me? We're not living up to our potential. We need to communicate very clearly that there's room in the kingdom for the people that the church is seeming to reject. We need to communicate to the world that God is capable of using even you in ministry. We need to communicate the message to the world to not forget where you came from because part of what happens alongside Mary's story is Simon's story. Let's stop looking at everybody else's problems and focus on serving Jesus. And when that happens, I reckon we're going home. Amen? Amen. Maybe that's why we're still here. We haven't caught the lesson. Kingdoms would rise and fall, and the names of monarchs and conquerors would be forgotten, but this woman's deed would be immortalized upon the pages of sacred history. Until time should be no more, that broken alabaster box would tell the story of the abundant love of God for a fallen human race. Her gift was an object lesson of His gift. Can you smell it today? Do you appreciate it today? And can the people in your sphere of influence smell what the people smelled in that room? Can they sense that you have been with Jesus? Can they sense that the love of Jesus is wafting through your life and that the offering of His life is reflected through yours? Do they see the faith of Jesus in you? Your offering, though, can bring Jesus that same level of satisfaction and love. Amen? When you give Jesus what you have with what you know, He's glad to receive it, and you need to be encouraged by that this evening. Some of us feel like, what I have to offer so little? I got nothing, Jesus. Like, I don't know how to give Bible studies. I don't know how to preach. Give what you can. She's done what she could. Just give what you can, guys. Jesus is glad to receive that. And you know what happens? When you give what you can, and it's a blessing to people, you're willing to ask Jesus, what else would you have me do? Where else would you have me go? Because once you've made a fool of yourself for Jesus once, and you didn't die, and you saw somebody's life change, you're willing to make a fool of yourself for Jesus another time in an even scarier environment. Yeah? But you've got to start somewhere. So give what you can. And when you do it, he's glad to receive it. I believe this is why he wants her story told. You know what the beautiful thing is? Her story can be your story. Her story can be yours. There they are. You guys can come on up. You know, it took her multiple encounters with the grace of Christ to finally be set free and to get it. It was dramatic. It wasn't a one prayer and seven left. This, this was a process. And you may feel that your life is one of those things that he's going to have to cast 47 demons out of your life. I'm just a disaster, Jesus. You could never use me. doesn't matter. If you feel that you've messed up too much and Jesus could not use you, this story is telling you you can come back today and her story can be yours. Amen? Amen. So I'd like to make an appeal before they sing. And I want you to pray over that appeal while they sing and then we'll follow up. The first appeal is this. Maybe you feel like Mary. You're giving everything you have for Jesus and no one seems to appreciate you and you're tempted to leave. I must not be welcome here. I don't fit in. Maybe you feel that you don't fit in in your local church setting and you're just tempted to walk and you're tempted to let them steal this precious gift from you. And you're realizing that this evening, I need to lay that down. That bitterness, that frustration, that I'm just going to check out and leave. No one cares about me. And you're wrestling. If that's you, 
want you to be reflecting over this, to lay that here this evening and to be willing to give Jesus what you got, even if no one responds in your local church because he's glad to receive it and other people will respond. My second appeal is this. Maybe your story is like Simon's. You forgot where you came from and you have found yourself being critical of everybody else and that everybody else has problems and you have forgotten that you yourself desperately need Jesus. You forgot how good Jesus has been to you in your darkest moments and who you were when he found you and have found yourself criticizing people who look just like you when you started. And you realize, I want to lay that here this evening. Jesus, I don't want that spirit of criticism in me anymore. I want the faith of Jesus to rule my life, not the spirit of selfishness. So our first appeal, if you find yourself in the situation that Mary was in, that you just, you're giving and giving and no one seems to appreciate and you're tempted to quit, and you're going to say this evening, Jesus, I'm not going to let them take this from me. I'm not going to forget where I came from. I'm going to keep serving, even if I'm making a fool of myself alone. I'll do it for you. I'll pour out my life as that gift for you. If that's you, I want to invite you to come forward. Maybe the second appeal, you find yourself in the situation of Simon. You've forgotten where you came from. And you recognize that you're finding yourself more critical of the people around you what other people aren't doing than seeing your own true condition. You recognize, Jesus, I have forgotten where I came from, and I want that to change tonight. If that's you, I invite you to come forward. And thirdly, maybe you feel like your situation is just hopeless. Jesus could never use me. Jesus could never change me. My life is a disaster. And I've come to see this evening that if Jesus can use this woman, casting seven demons out of her, then maybe Jesus can do something with me. And I want to be used. I didn't think there was a chance for me, but maybe if there was a chance for her, maybe there's a chance for me. And if that's you, I want to invite you to come forward and take hold of that by faith. If Jesus could use her, he can use me. Let's pray. Jesus, you know our hearts, you know our stories, and you love us anyway. Having loved your own who are in the world, Lord Jesus, you have loved us to the end with a love that's stronger than death. So Lord, I pray that you would cover our sins of unbelief, of fear, of bitterness, of criticism. And Lord, I pray that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus would make us free from the law of sin and death and that whom the Son has set free would be free indeed and tonight. In the name of Jesus, we tear down these strongholds, we take every thought captive to Jesus, and we ask that you would transform our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and that this would be the first day of the rest of our lives. Never again forgetting where we came from, never again letting people steal that gift of us of knowing where we came from and pouring out our life as a fragrant offering on behalf of Jesus. This is our plea, Lord, and we give this to you in Jesus' name, which is the name above all names. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.